0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to continue a sermon series we began a few weeks ago. Uh, called The Lord of the Earth. And this series is a part of a number of series that we've been walking through in 2022 out of the book of Revelation. Now, if you've been with us all of this year, you know what I'm getting ready to ask you. And what I'm going to ask you is the book of Revelation is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we have seen Jesus revealed as the Lord of the church. We've seen him revealed as the Lord of, of heaven. And now we're seeing him revealed as the Lord of the earth. And we've seen that in a number of different movements over these chapters 6 through 18 in Revelation. And today we're going to be in our fourth installment in this series as we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 through 19. But before we look at Revelation 11, I want to just have you think about a, a concept and a question And that is, is it worth it to follow Christ? Is it worth it to follow Christ? Now, you're here at 830 on a Sunday, so you're predisposed to say, yes, it is worth it to follow Christ. But let me ask you again, is it worth it to follow him if following him leads to persecution? Is it worth it to follow him if following him leads to rejection from your family or your friends? Is it worth it to follow Him if following Him might mean that you don't get the promotion at work that you feel like you have earned and deserve because you won't cross that ethical line? Is it worth it to follow Him if following Him would make your earthly life in some senses more complicated or more difficult? Is it worth it to follow Christ? Well, friends, again, you're here at 830 on a Sunday. You're predisposed, as I am, to say absolutely it is worth it. But why? Why is it worth it? Why is it worth it to be a witness to Jesus Christ, pointing others to him, even in a world that might be opposed to him? Why is it worth it? Well, we're going to see that today as we look at the heart of God and also the reality of following Jesus even in the midst of opposition in Revelation chapter 11. So if you got a Bible, take it out and turn there. I want to read these 19 verses, all of chapter 11, and then we'll back up and make a couple of observations as we seek to connect these verses to our lives. Revelation 11, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle John writes and says this, this says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven." The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So let's look at chapter 11. Now, if you're following along in those verses, you may be thinking, what in the world are we going to see in these verses? And I have to tell you, even as I was preparing for this week, I asked myself that question at the beginning of the week. But I'm so encouraged by what we see here, really some very encouraging words for you and I. And so I want us to take a look at them together. We're going to see what we need to see in a couple of movements from these verses. Well, what is it that we need to see? The first thing we need to see is this, words for the witnesses. Words for the witnesses. These verses, the first 14 of them, talk about two witnesses during the time that is the end. And these witnesses and things that happen around them provide encouragement for us who are also witnesses to the work of Jesus Christ in our own lives. So what do we see here in these first 14 verses related to words for the witnesses. Well, the first thing we need to do is remember the context. We're going to quickly cover this, but it's important to remember where we are in in human history when we see these verses in Revelation 11. We, We are reminded that there was already a rapture of the church. So these are future events, and before the events of Revelation 6 through 18 start, the church of Jesus Christ is removed from the earth. We meet Jesus in the sky, and we were removed from the Earth, because Jesus has promised His followers in Revelation three that we will not face the hour of trial that will come upon the entire Earth. And so the church is removed before the judgment of God begins. But then the judgment of God begins, and we saw a couple of weeks ago how this judgment will come upon the Earth in, in various waves, with seals and bowls and trumpets. But these waves of judgment will take place over a period of seven years, looking back to the clock that Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter 9. And so there's seven years of judgment that come upon the earth in the days leading up to the return of Christ to the earth. Now, why seven years? Well, again, we have seen repeatedly inside of this series that the reason why there's been this delay in Jesus' second coming and the reason why there's even a delay in seven years of judgment upon the earth is to prolong this judgment to give people on the earth a chance to repent. As Second Peter 3.9 reminds us again and again, the heart of God is for all to come to repentance. And so he is patient in exacting his judgment so that we might have a chance to respond. And as the end is unfolding, as these last seven years before the return of Christ are unfolding, there are, are many who repent. there are, are many who who come to Christ in that era. Though the church is gone, God has a a witness upon the earth. And that witness we saw a couple of weeks ago was this 144,000, the the nation of Israel at that time coming to faith in Christ and being his witnesses and testimony upon the earth. And then we saw in heaven that there are going to be scores of people who come to faith in Christ during this tribulation era in response to the testimony of the nation of Israel. And so we, we see this as the context of the events of chapter 11. But as we think of that context, we really ought to ask ourselves a question. How is it that God will grab the hearts of those 144,000? If there will be those who lead a revival upon the earth at that time, and those will be members of the nation of Israel, how does God get the word to them? though we don't know exactly how, we do get a little bit of a picture of how it might happen in Revelation 11. Because in Revelation 11, what we see is, we see the arrival of two witnesses, two prophets, if you will, that God raises up and has demonstrated a mighty ministry upon the earth during the time of the tribulation. Now these two witnesses are, are given authority by God. They, they, are, they are given a task, a ministry. And the ministry that they have is for a specified period of time. That, that period of time is for 1,260 days. Now if you think of a month as having 30 days, somebody want to guess how long that is? It's three and a half years. For three and a half years, these two witnesses have a prominent ministry upon the earth. Interestingly, in Daniel's timeline in Daniel 9 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Daniel divided that last seven years into two parts. One part was how long? Three and a half years. And so we see some parallels. And it's another reason why I think Daniel is talking about a, a real clock, a real timeline, a real seven years. And so for half of that seven years, there'll be two witnesses upon the earth that'll be doing the work of the Lord. What will they be doing? Well, by the nature of them being clothed in sackcloth, we're reminded that they're gonna be calling people to repentance. They're going to be looking at the judgment that is coming upon the earth and helping to make sense of that judgment to a watching world, telling them that they need to repent of their sin and to trust and find their salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, their ministry is for three and a half years, but what else do we know about these these two? Well, one of the things we know about them is that they are also members of the nation of Israel. We see that because of how they're described. They're described here as a couple of olive trees, a couple of lampstands. Now. For us, that may not be all that significant. It sounds a little cryptic, but these two descriptions are actually things that are talked about in Zechariah chapter 4. We don't have time to look at it today, but if you wanted to look there later, you can see in Zechariah 4 that God's servants, Israel, are, are represented by a leader and a priest who are described as, you guessed it, olive trees and lampstands. And so we have this representative leadership of Israel, two witnesses that God is going to grab the heart of first and give a specific role to minister in the world during the tribulation, inviting people to follow Christ. Now, when we see all of that play out, where is it happening? Well, unsurprising, it's happening in the city of Jerusalem. Why is that unsurprising? Well, if they are ethnically Jewish, it would make sense for them to be in this location. It also makes sense because Jerusalem is kind of where it all began, and if God is resuming relating to his people Israel, there is no greater center of operations than the nation of Israel. We know that if this is happening in Israel because and in Jerusalem in particular, because of what is said in places like Verse 8, the second part, where it says that in the street of the great city, what is the great city? Well, it's the great city where our Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? Right outside the city of Jerusalem. Well, you might go, well, what is this about Sodom and Egypt? Well, the references to Sodom and Egypt is to say that at the time that these two witnesses are ministering, The city of Jerusalem is not exhibiting godliness, but instead is exhibiting all kinds of godless behavior. And so in in an environment where the city of Jerusalem is marked like the city of Sodom or Egypt with sin or idolatry, two witnesses arise and begin to give testimony to the reality of their God. Not only are they in Jerusalem, but we see in the first couple of verses that also in Jerusalem, there is a temple that John is to go and to measure as he sees this vision of the future. Now, when we see that there's a temple there, uh, we, we might go, well, yeah, there's a temple there. But when John hears that at the end, there'll be a city of Jerusalem where God will have prophets and witnesses who are giving testimony, and there'll be a temple. That's big news for John. You know why? Somebody remember our timeline for when the book of Revelation was written? It was written in the 90s AD. In 70 AD, there was a very dominant event the most amazing event of the lifetime of many people who were alive at that time, it was the destruction of the city of Jerusalem where the temple was destroyed. The the rocks of the temple were pushed off of the temple mount, cracking the pavements below. The city was burned and the Jews were scattered all over the world. And so when John is receiving this testimony, there are no Jews in Jerusalem, at least not in any prominent way, and there is no temple. But when this vision of the end comes, John is reminded there will be, again, Jews in prominent roles in Jerusalem, and there will be a temple. Now, we sit in an amazing point in history, friends, because as we sit here today in 2022, this is not as wild for us to imagine, because since the late 1940s, There have been Jewish people living in a government inside of the land of Israel. But that is a unique thing in terms of the time since Christ was on the earth. You realize from 70 AD all the way until the late 1940s, there was no nation of Israel. At least not in a geopolitical way. And there still is not a temple but there are Jews in prominent roles inside of the city of Jerusalem. So we see the events winding up more now for the fulfillment of what God is telling us will happen in the time that is the end. So with all of that together, let's talk for a moment about these two witnesses. And let's think about some perspective that you and I might gain by looking at their lives. Because though we do not live in the the time that is the end, we do not live in the great tribulation. That's the last seven years. And if you trust Christ, you won't be around for that. We'll be watching from heaven as a result of the rapture. But there are things for us to see and to be encouraged by when we think of the example of these two witnesses. So what are some of the words for the witnesses that you and I might see today? Well, the first word of encouragement for the witnesses is this. God always has witnesses. God always has witnesses. There's there's not a time on this earth where God is devoid of someone who can point others to him, who can make sense of the things that are happening on this planet. We see that in his desire to raise up these two witnesses when the church is removed. He raises up two witnesses to point others to him. But friends, this is not unique to the end time. This is something that God is doing even now, not through two witnesses, but through the church. Do you realize that we have been commissioned to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, to give evidence that he is real and that he is is sitting sovereign over this universe, that we, we are those who have been commissioned to go out and give a witness to him. Jesus made that clear in Acts 1.8, before his ascension, he says, but you will receive power, church, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Friends, Jesus always has witnesses on the earth. God is always giving a testimony to himself everywhere. And and right now in this season, if you know Jesus Christ, you realize that one of your primary roles in your life now is to be a witness for him. I'm not saying that, that we have to draw our vocation from that. What I'm saying is regardless of what your vocation is, your purpose is to make Christ known, to follow him in obedience so that others see what it looks like to be connected to Christ but also to open your mouth and to tell others about the greatness of who Jesus is. Friends, this is what God is doing. He's going to be doing it all the way up to the time that Christ returns, and he certainly is doing it now. God always has his witnesses, and in this era, his witness is you. Second thing that we need to see, this words for the witnesses, is this. God does the work. God does the work. God is the one who is working in this world through our witness to draw others to himself. That, that's why Jesus says, you, know, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit coming precedes our witness. Why? Because we are not persuasive enough to do what God wants us to do. In order for the ministry that God wants to do through us to be effective, God has to be the one doing it. So God shows up in the Holy Spirit to work through us. And and that is also the case through these two witnesses at the end. I think it's really interesting in verse 6 how these two witnesses are described. It says that they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Now, just real quick, let's hit pause Who does that sound like? Elijah, you guys are very, 8.30, right? You guys are awesome. It sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? Elijah, in his showdown with Ahab, prayed and a drought came upon the earth. Uh, In James chapter 5, that act is celebrated. Elijah, a man just like us, prayed and it didn't rain upon the earth. And so there's a hint an allusion here to Elijah. And then it says, and then they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth and every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, who does that sound like? Moses, 830 coming through again. It sounds like Moses, doesn't it? Moses, who God used to go into Egypt and to turn the Nile to blood, to call down plagues as the request went out to let my people go and to worship in the wilderness. See, friends, these are allusions to Elijah and to Moses. And because of that, some biblical scholars look at this verse and say, see, what is, what is being communicated here is that Elijah and Moses will be reincarnated and be on the earth in the time that is the end. And while I, that is certainly within God's right and power to do it that way, I don't think that's what's happening. You know why? Because these men are identified as two men, not Elijah and Moses. When they appear at the Mount of Transfiguration, remember that? How are they identified? Peter says, hey, should we build some houses for Elijah and Moses to hang out and like have a sleepover? I mean, that that was the thought at, at that time. They were identified. But here they're described just as two men that's because I don't think this is Elijah and Moses. I think these are just two men. But it's not a problem for us to see it that way for for this reason. You know what made Elijah and Moses' ministry so spectacular? It wasn't because their name was Elijah and Moses. It wasn't because they were born with just this amazing power And they spent the first 40 years of their life honing their ability to throw lightning bolts or to jump to heaven. Their power had nothing to do with their personal abilities. It had everything to do with what God was doing through them. And if God was doing something through them, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we shouldn't be surprised that when God is going to re-engage a prophetic-type ministry that he would do so in a spectacular way with his very signature coming through to new witnesses in the end. Friends, what this reminds us of is that as it says in Acts 1-8, we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and that power will be used to do the ministry that God has. Now, you might wonder, well, does that mean that we're going to call down plagues? No, no. We're not living in this era. The program that God has right now is different for us. You know what what God wants us to do right now? You know know what what he wants us to do as his witnesses right now? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. He wants us to be ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, imploring others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Friends, as amazing as it would be to see plagues called down from the sky, I'm thankful the Lord has us serving in this era for that mission. Amen? Right now, the Lord wants to use you as his witness in this world, not to call down fire on your neighbor, but to be the hands and feet of Jesus and invite them implore them on behalf of God, God speaking through you, inviting them to place their faith and trust in Christ. That's true whether you have a microphone or that's true whether you're just a neighbor. That's true whether you're visiting a friend in the hospital or that's, that's true whether you're just grabbing lunch or going to work on a Tuesday. Friends, we are, are called to be his witnesses and God will do the work through us second thing we see. Third encouragement, word for the witnesses that we see here is this. God numbers our days. God numbers our days. Now, when I, when I say that, we, we see a little bit of that in Revelation eleven five and then verse 7. See, these two witnesses, as they are ministering, um, God is protecting them How is God protecting them? Verse 5 tells us, if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouths and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Uh, Now that is pretty dramatic, isn't it? But it it fits the context. God is pouring out these seal judgments upon the earth. God is pouring out these trumpet judgments upon the earth. And and while he is doing that, these two witnesses are standing in Jerusalem saying, this is because of your rejection of God. And, And they are also demonstrating the ability to call down some plagues. And so the anger and the ire of the world turns its focus on these two witnesses and wants to take them out. They are angry at God. And so they want to take these two witnesses out. But they can't because God is protecting them and God protects them until their testimony is finished. This is not saying that they had one really long speech, and God waited till the end to allow them to be killed. No, it's saying that God had appointed a time for them to minister, and no one would harm them until that time was done. Who wants to harm them? None other than the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit who is that? Well, you got to come back next week. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. But this is a reference to the Antichrist. The Antichrist himself, on a satanic mission, wants to take out these two witnesses. But they are totally unsuccessful until God says, okay, it's okay now. Their testimony is complete. Friends, this is an encouragement to us That God sits sovereign over all things, including the number of our days. We will live the life the Lord has intended for us to live. We can trust Him. Fourth thing that we see, fourth word to the witnesses is this God's blessing is greater. God's blessing is greater. God's blessing is greater than any suffering or persecution or difficulty that we might experience. And that comes so clear inside of these verses. It is is the backstory, backdrop, central message of chapter 11. And it's found in all of the numbers that we see there. Let's, Let's look at it. When it comes to Jesus and the witnesses who are pointing others to him, they are given three and a half years of ministry, verse 3 tells us, that leads to an eternity of blessing. Right After they are killed, verse 11 and 12, has God resurrect them from the grave and then invite them into heaven where they will spend eternity. And the world sees it. Remarkable. Three and a half years of ministry, an eternity of blessing, and then ultimately the judgment of their enemies with the earthquake and the response on the earth in verses 13 and 14. This is what happens for those who follow Christ. But what about the agenda of the beast or the Antichrist? What, what, is, what does that get? Well, the beast gets exactly three and a half days of an apparent defeat of the enemy. Now, he's able to kill these witnesses, but they only stay dead for three and a half days. The world gloats over them for three and a half days. The world exchanges presents like Christmas time for three and a half days because the two witnesses have been killed, but it's only for three and a half days. And then all of this is waiting them. So friends, which of these is greater? Three and a half years of ministry that is exactly the right length that a sovereign God has authored for our lives, an eternity of blessing, the ultimate judgment of our enemies, or three and a half days of a defeat? It's no comparison. It is no comparison. And this is the encouragement to the church that is experiencing persecution and difficulty. We may have three and a half days of defeat and the world gloating over us, but it is nothing compared to the blessing of God. And so Jesus is clearly better. Friends, as we gather here today as as witnesses For Jesus Christ. May we be a people who not only think of this this, this role of being a witness, but may we be a people who are encouraged to continue our witness, even if we are living in a three and a half day persecution environment. We might stay with Him. So, the first thing we see are words for the witnesses. But a second thing that we need to see this morning from these verses is this. The nations rage, but Jesus reigns. The nations rage, but Jesus reigns. Now, Revelation really is a book of worship. There are a number of different songs. We, we sing songs. Even in our, in our worship services today, we sing songs that are based out of the book of Revelation. But There's a little bit of a hymnal inside of Revelation that focuses on different aspects of God's character in different spots. We've already seen some of these. In Revelation chapter 4, God is highlighted as creator, and there is a song of praise to God the creator. In Revelation 5, Jesus is revealed as the redeemer, the lamb that was slain. And there's a song about the redemption that Christ provides. But in chapter 11, what we see is a, a song of Jesus as the conquering king the conquering king. If we want to focus and meditate on Jesus as our conquering king, we need to turn in our hymnals to Revelation 11 and begin reading in verse 15 as we see Jesus revealed as this conquering king. And the the crescendo of this whole book in many ways is found in verse 15. When it says, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign for ever and ever. Now, does that line sound familiar to you? It is a direct line that is quoted inside of what song? The Hallelujah Chorus, 830. You guys are just nailing it today. In the Hallelujah Chorus, Handel basically takes this verse and he sets it to music. It's an amazing reminder. And in many ways, verse 15 of chapter 11 is the climax of the book of Revelation in terms of the theology in the book. Now, when I say that, you might go, well, there's there's still half of the book left. But in many ways, friends, Revelation builds to a point with this declaration and then after verse 15 is just all of this ultimately coming to pass upon the earth. This is the statement of what is getting ready to happen, that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ will become the kingdom of this world. Jesus is going to come back and establish a kingdom here. He's going to begin to reign here. And it's so certain that in this section, it's talked about in the past tense. This is a prophetic voice. They're so certain that when Christ returns that he's going to return and that he's going to reign that it says the kingdom of the world has become. It's something that is so certain it is spoken of in the past tense. Jesus is coming back and he is going to reign. And when he does, what will transpire? Well, he's gonna reign upon the earth. And as he reigns upon the earth, wrath will come to the earth that will judge the wrongdoers It will judge the dead. At the same time, when he comes back, he will reward his servants, great and small. If we have trusted in Christ, when Jesus returns, he will reward us for trusting in him. And not only that, but Jesus, when he comes back, is going to destroy the destroyers. The beast, the antichrist, Satan, all will be destroyed at the time when Christ returns. And again, all these things are spoken of in the past tense, not because they've already happened, but because they're so certain to happen in the future that we speak of them in the past. And so, friends, as we gather here today, we are reminded of the fact that Jesus is reigning and that his kingdom is coming, all at the same time that the nations around us are raging. And so... I'll come back to that. But let me just close with this. If the nations are raging and Jesus is reigning, which of those phrases better describes you? Are are you, in your life, is it more characterized like the nations who are just raging? just angry all the time, frustrated, feel like everything is spinning, spiraling out of control? Are you a raging nation or are you a follower of Jesus knowing that he is reigning? doesn't mean that there aren't things that, that motivate us to action. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that, that, that uh, are, are wrong in this world that we are to call out and to speak against, but it does mean that we do so from a position of peace and in the power of Christ and not just raging as the nations do. Friends, it's possible for us as we gather here today to not just rage, but to worship the one who is worthy and the one who is reigning. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for these words. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to study it today. I pray that you would just give us the faith to follow you and to proclaim you and to be a witness for you, even in this age in which we currently live. Lord, may we not just be those who are raging like the nations, but may may we be people who point others to you who are reigning on high. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.